Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles. Let's go to Mark chapter number 14, the book of Mark in chapter 14. Hopefully you have your Bible with you. If you do not have it with you, there'll be one in the back of the seat in front of you. Maybe in the back of the seat behind you, you'll find a copy of God's Word. And we would encourage you to pick up that copy and follow along with us in Mark chapter number 14. As we continue making our way right through the book of Mark, as our preaching and teaching method is here at First Baptist Church, simply to go, next chapter... Next verse, and walk through God's Word together in that fashion. We find ourselves this morning, Mark chapter 14, and we're going to be in verse number 32. Mark chapter 14, verse number 32. If you found your place and if you're willing and able, stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word. Mark 14, verse 32, and we're going to read down to verse number 42. Mark 14, 32 to 42. We're picking up in verse 32 here. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Let me just pull the car over here for a second. Look here. Do you believe that all things are possible for our God? I believe we serve a God who's capable of doing whatever he wants to do. Including helping your marriage. Helping with your kids. F- including what's broken in our society. Do we serve a God who's possible of all things? All things are possible unto thee. So take away this cup from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he cometh, and he findeth them sleeping. And he saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldest not thou watch one hour? Now look here, they were all sleeping, just so you know. Peter, James, they were all sleeping. So why does he only single out Simon? Well, because just a few verses earlier, Simon had made a point, did he not? Everybody else will, will, will forsake you. Everybody else will desert you. They are all weak in the faith, but I am strong in the faith. And not only will I not desert you, but I will die for you. Remember that? So now Jesus here goes, uh, hey, Simon, <clears throat> remember that whole die for me thing? You couldn't even stay awake one hour. Verse 38, watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. How many of you felt that way this morning when the alarm clock went off? Spirit was ready. Oh, flesh, flesh was weak, right? And again, he went away, he prayed and spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy, and neither wist they what to answer him. And he cometh the third time, and he saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up and let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. Our Heavenly Father, use your word in our lives. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, Amen. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. We studied this passage of Scripture last week and we highlighted the invitation from Jesus to pray. We talked about what a privilege 
prayer is. If you weren't here for that sermon, I invite you to go back to our website and find it. I I believe it would be helpful to you. The invitation to pray, the privilege to pray, and oh, the opportunities we have to take our burdens and our requests and our fears and our struggles to the Lord in prayer. And while Jesus is inviting the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, and Jesus is doing something else altogether different. And Jesus is wrestling here in the garden, you notice, with the Father's will. It says in verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible to thee. Take away this cup from me, nevertheless, not what I will. He says, not my will, but your will. Not what I will, but what thou wilt, what you want to be done. The Bible says in verse 39, he prayed the same words the second time. We can can infer then, after Jesus wakes them up after the second one, goes off and prays, what did he pray the third time? He probably prayed the exact same words again. And he comes back and he finds them sleeping. Take note of this, just by way of introduction. God's will... God's will is rarely easy, but it is always best. God's will is rarely easy, but it is always best. And God loves to take you and I on the path of most resistance. You and I want to take the path of least resistance. We want to take what's easy, what's comfortable. But God, God wants us to take a path that requires us to depend on him. Why? Why is it that God wants us on the path of most resistance? And the answer is several things, really, but here's a few of them. First... Because when we are on the path of most resistance, we find out who he really is. It it forces us, it causes us to depend on who he is, not on who we are. When we're on the path of most resistance, it forces us to realize what he is up to in the world. Not, Not simply of what's going on in our own world but what God is doing in the whole world. What God is doing across the nations. It forces our attention from our own little bubble to look at all that God is doing throughout the ages and to recognize that God's will is being accomplished and then he is inviting us into it. God's will is rarely easy, but God's will is always best. And Jesus is showing us this in this passage of Scripture. Notice, you'll remind yourself of this, that Jesus has already been in the upper room with the disciples. They've eaten the Passover. And Jesus has given them the teaching that he is the final lamb. He is the lamb of God sent to take away the sin of the world. They've left the upper room. They've gone down into the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where we're picking up our story. Look at verse verse 32. And they came to a place which was named, notice, Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a garden. Some of you will remember this. When we took our trip to Israel a few years ago, we we got to spend about half of the day inside of the Garden of Gethsemane. We started at the top of the Mount of Olives. We walked down that road that Jesus would have taken as they threw palm tree palm leaves in front of him. And then we landed at the bottom of the hill in the garden. And there we sat for a time of reflection and teaching and prayer. And people who lived in the city had so many people around them, they had very little space. And so it was not uncommon for them to buy gardens or buy land around them and have these little quiet places of solitude. That's what's happening here. Someone owned this garden. And they had given permission to the Lord to use it. The city is full of people. You remember this, it's Passover week. So the city is full of people. The disciples have had final meal. 
And Jesus is looking for a place to pray and finding a quiet location is, would have been difficult in this season. And yet they find this garden. Why? Because here is a person who is taking what he has and he is using it to the best of his ability for the Savior. Do not overlook that. A nameless person in all of the gospel records who is taking what God has entrusted to him and who is using what God has entrusted to him for the sake of the Savior. Like the man who was unnamed, who provided the colt that Jesus rode down into the city on. Or like the man who made all the preparations for the final Passover meal. You do not know their name. You do not know their story. You do not know what their interaction with Jesus was. You do not know their past. And yet, they are using what they have. A garden, a room, a cult. And they are using it in service to Jesus Christ. Now look here. I don't know what you have. You probably don't have what someone else has. But you have something. And the question for you and I this morning is, are you using what you have in service for Christ? You know what many people think? Many people think, well, I don't have what she has, so I can't use what I have. I'm not as gifted as they are, so I can be of no service. And these individuals in the text are striking against that. They go against this kind of downstream thinking. And they help us to see that whatever we have, whether it's a cult or a room or a garden, that God has entrusted to us certain things. God has put in your hands certain things that he wants you to use for his kingdom. Maybe it's a car. Maybe it's a house. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a really good personality. Maybe it's a lot of money. Maybe it's a beautiful singing voice. Maybe it's strength. Maybe it's a great mind. I don't know what it is, but God has given to you certain things. Are you using those things as an ends to self-gratification and self-expression? Or are you using those things to the end of glorifying God who is in heaven? And most people use the things they have just for their own pleasure, for their own purposes, for their own ideas, for, for the here and for the now. They do what they want, with whoever they want, whenever they want, simply because they want. And God has called us as Christians to see what he has entrusted to us and then to use those things for his honor and for his glory. So what, are you, what do you have in your hand that you are using for the honor and the glory of God? And can I tell you this? That God gives things to people who he knows he can get things through those people. God gives to so he can get through. God gives to those individuals that he knows he can get those things through. Remember what he told Abraham? I'm going to bless you so you will bless many. Remember that? I'm going to bless you so you will be a blessing to the nations. And many of us, as it relates to our, as it comes to our relationship with the things that God has given to us, whether it's opportunity or ability or riches or, or favor or position or place, wherever God has put you in your community, at your office, in the job, in your family. God has given to you particular things. God has put you in a particular place. God has put in your hand a cult or a room or a garden. And he is asking us to use these things for his honor and glory. 
Man, what an unbelievable person the owner of the Garden of Gethsemane is. You know, the Bible says in the book of John, John chapter 18, that Jesus and his disciples went to this garden, this garden often. In other words, it wasn't one and done for this guy. And he had a good relationship with Christ. He had an ongoing relationship with Christ. And he used what he had in his relationship with Christ for the glory of Christ. And he did this. Listen, he did this often. You do not have to be anybody else. You do not have to have the gifts and the opportunities that anyone else has, but you do have gifts. You do have opportunities. You are who God has made you. Are you using what God has given to you for his honor and for his glory? Hey, aren't you glad that you don't have to be me? I'm glad I don't have to be you. We don't have the same gifts. We don't have the same opportunities. We don't have the same abilities. If they said to me, hey, Dave, you're up. You're doing the special music today before the sermon. That would be a disaster. It would not go good. That is not a gift. That is not an ability that I have. But you may have that gift. You may have that ability. Are you using it in service to God? You say, well, pastor, I'd like to use what I have in service to God. How would I do that? There's all kinds of wonderful processes that we have here at First Baptist Church of how you can get plugged into a ministry, how you can use what God has given to you in order to serve and in order to be a blessing to others. I encourage you to stop by the Welcome Center and ask about that. How can I be of service in this way? How can I use what God has given to me to be a blessing to those around us, to be in service to the church, to the body of Christ? How can I use what I have to serve others? Now, there's some of you in the room, you can sing and you can sing well. And you should be in the choir. But instead of being in the choir, you're in your seat. And God has given to you a voice, which would be a blessing to those around you, which would be a blessing to this congregation. You should join the choir. The choir director should say amen right now. There are those of you who you're really good with babies and comforting them. You're great with kids. You should help in the kids' classes. You can serve. There's a process for how you can be a part of that. You should sign up to do it. The person in charge of the kids should say amen right now. Here's what I'm telling you. God is not giving you gifts. God is not giving you abilities. God is not giving you opportunities for you to come to church and for you to sit and soak and sour. This is how most people, their church experience is. Oh, I didn't like that song. And they were too loud. And they were too, that was too low. And this was too this. And that was too much. And, 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 and we become, instead of joy-filled, Holy Spirit-led servants of God, using what he has given to us for his glory, joyfully, we become grumpy and cranky and obstinate. And the world has no use of grumpy Christians. The Christians, out of all people, ought to be people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Holy Spirit is what? It is joy. Jesus says, I have come. Why? That you might have joy. And joy, what? Abundantly. Is that, is that your understanding from last week? Abundant joy. Being confident in who God has made you, using what God has given to you for his honor and for his glory. Well, that's not the first point. That was just introduction. But you, I hope you got it. So here it is. The Bible says, verse 32, and they came to a place which was named, notice, Gethsemane. Gethsemane is owned by an unnamed man who uses what he has for the service of the king. 
in the final moments of Jesus' life. Think of that. Had this man said, you know what, Jesus, when you and your disciples come down to the garden, it's always a mess, and I always got to go in there and clean up after you, and I don't know, I just got, I got olives, and it's, 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 it's ripe season right now. I just don't know if I can afford to have you in there, and I'm really tired, and I've served for a long time already. You've been in the garden before. I just don't know if this is a good opportunity for me right now. Are these all the excuses that we use? And had he said that, what? He would have missed the opportunity in the final moments of Jesus' life. The final moments of Jesus, just days from here, Jesus is surrendering. He's giving up the ghost. Less than a day from here, Jesus is giving up the ghost on the cross. And this man, in these final moments, has the opportunity to use what he has for the service of God. And many of us, we think, well, I'll serve Jesus with what I have later. I'll serve Jesus with what I have next week, next month, next year. When it's a more convenient season for me, that's when I'll decide to serve Jesus. But listen, friend, you and I are not promised tomorrow. All we have is today. So we should use what we have in service for God while we have opportunity to serve God. And here is this man, Gethsemane, unnamed man, using what he has for the service of the king. Gethsemane is an interesting place. It's literally, literally the name means the place of pressing. The large garden where they would take olives off of these olive trees and they would crush them. They would press them into olive oil. How appropriate it is that Jesus is here in this place just hours before he's surrendered over to his enemies. Isaiah says that Christ, the Messiah, when he comes, he would be bruised, he would be pierced, he would be crushed. He would be a man acquainted. Listen to it. He would be a man acquainted. His best friends with sorrow. A man acquainted with sorrow. And as much as sorrow as Jesus had in his life, and he had a lot, the 33 years of our Lord's life in this world, and he was constantly exposed to sorrow. The sorrow of a friend's death. The sorrow of sick children. The the, the sorrow of false and dead religiousness. The sorrow of being hated and lied and and being maligned, being accused. The sorrow of having those closest to him betray him in his most difficult hour. The hour has come. This is what the text says. The hour has come. The time, the moment, the minute he needed them the most. A man acquainted with sorrow. All of these sorrows pale in comparison to the sorrow he's about to feel. The father will turn his back on him. God's will is rarely easy, but God's will is always best. And God wills that you and I would use what we have in service to him while we can. For Christ Jesus, God's will is three things. I want you to see them in the text. Notice, God's will was a place of agony for Jesus. Look at the verse, verse number 32. He came to Gethsemane. He said to the disciples, sit ye here while I shall pray. He taketh with him Peter and James and John. He began, notice these phrases, to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And he said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful. Literally, running over with sorrow. That's the word. Running over with, it's exceeding sorrowful. Doing the Father's will had always been Jesus' primary concern in this life. You remember when he was 12 years old, he got lost from his parents? 
Finally, his mom and dad find him back again, and Luke records the account. Mary and Joseph say to Jesus, where were you? And what does Jesus say back to them? He says, did you not know? Wished ye not? Knew, did you not know that I must be, you remember it, about my father's business? John, early in Jesus' ministry, records Jesus saying this in John chapter number 6, my meat, literally my strength. The, 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 the strength, the, the sustenance of my life is to do the will. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me. He says in John 6 again later, verse 38, For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the Father. Jesus' primary mission in this life was to do God's will. And the will of God, listen very closely, the will of God was not something that God the Father forced onto Jesus. It was something that Jesus, God the Son, was always seeking to do. John chapter 5, verse 30, I came uh, not of my own for of myself I can do nothing. But I seek not my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And so we can't avoid the obvious question here. If Jesus desired to do God's will, if Jesus could only do the will of the Father, then what was the agony for? Have you ever wondered that? What was the exceeding sorrow, sore, amazed, very heavy, what was it for? If he was resigned to do the will of God, then what was this for? Notice the phrase, look at verse 33, let's take them at a time. Sore, amazed, very heavy, exceeding, sorrowful. Sore, amazed, very heavy, exceeding, sorrowful. Sore, amazed, what could amaze Jesus what would amaze him? He's omniscient. Several times in the Bible we're told that Jesus knew the intent. Literally the phrase in the Bible, the Bible is, he knew their heart. He knew what they thought. Do you know what the person next to you is thinking? No. You know why you do not know that? Because you are not God. You might think you know what they're thinking, but you do not. And nor do I. But God does. Why? He does because he is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Jesus knows everything. So, so what is it that is stunning Jesus? What is it that's shocking Jesus? What is it that is amazing Jesus at this point? Is there anything that he doesn't know? And of course the answer is yes. This is what he does not yet know. What? The cost of sin. He's never experienced sin. The Bible says that Jesus was in all points tempted like we are, yet, what? Without sin. So for all that Jesus knew, and he knows it all, he did not know sin. He was without sin. And so this is what he is face to face with in the garden. He is face to face with becoming our sin bearer. Paul would say it like this, that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. Listen, by him. So what made Jesus sorrowful? What, what makes the Garden of Gethsemane a place of agony for Jesus? Well, there's several things it's not, and there's one thing that it was. Notice, it is not death. Gethsemane was not agony for Jesus because Jesus was going to die. It is not death. In fact, Jesus wasn't afraid to die physically. And Jesus said, I have come to give my life a ransom for many. That's a man who is resolved. He knows he's going to die. He's ready to do it. In fact, Jesus encouraged the disciples in Matthew chapter number 10. Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill the body. You hear what he's saying? He's saying this, this house this earthly tabernacle that we have, this is just a shell. 
That's all this is. Do not kill, do not fear them that can kill the body. Instead, fear him that can kill both the body and the soul in hell, is what he says. And Jesus was not afraid to death. He was resigned to the fact that he knew he was going to die. Second, Jesus was not afraid of the pain of death. I don't want to minimize the pain that Jesus would go through on the cross. It's certainly true. It was excruciating beyond measure. The Old Testament prophets tell us nobody suffered like Jesus suffered. Nobody felt like what Jesus had felt. Nobody went through like what Jesus had gone through. But Jesus in the garden is not on his face before the Father saying, I cannot bear the physical pain. In fact, Christians for the last several thousand years have endured physical pain. They've endured torture, maligned, imprisoned, fed to lions, fed to dogs, fed to wolves. You remember the story of that great hero of the faith, John Fox in his books, Fox's Book of Martyrs, records it for us. If you've never read the book, I commend it to you. You can stop by the bookstore on your way out and pick it up. But he records the story of Polycarp, who was tied to a pole. He was covered with pitch. He was covered with tar. And he was about to be set on fire. The emperor shouts to Polycarp, blaspheme Christ or die. And Polycarp simply responds, how can I forsake a king who has saved me for these 80 and 6 years? Light the fire. If Polycarp, a follower of Jesus Christ, can face the pain of death to no regard of this physical life, then certainly it's true that Jesus was not in the garden praying for the physical pain to be taken away. Or for death to be removed. It was not the fact of death. It was not the pain of death. But let me tell you this third one. Here's what it was. The agony in the garden was the cause of death. What is the cause of death according to the Bible? For the wages, the cost, the consequence, the cause, the wages of sin. What is it? Did you know death was not a part of God's plan? When God made Adam and Eve and set them in the garden of Gethsemane, death was not in the picture. That's why it is most natural for the body to fight death even until the very end. If you've ever been with someone when they're giving their final breath in this life, there's, there's a struggle that's happening for that person most of the time. Why? This is right. This is natural. We fight death in this way. Why? Because this is not a part of the plan. Then why do people die? Why do people get sick? Why is there suffering? Why is there heartbreak? Why are there things like hurricanes and tornadoes and tsunamis and earthquakes? Why do these things happen? Well, according to the Bible, the reason they happen is because of sin. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is coming face to face with death. He's not afraid of death. He's ready for it. This is what he came for. And Jesus in the face, in the Garden of Gethsemane, is coming face to face with the pain, the excruciating nature of the suffering sacrifice that would be required of him to save us. And he was ready to give his body in this way. And Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is coming face to face, notice, with the cause of death. It is the anticipation of experiencing the Father's will and it is embracing the role of becoming a sacrifice for sin. Jesus became in the Garden of Gethsemane, listen very closely, Jesus became in the Garden of Gethsemane our sin bearer. He is face to face with something in Gethsemane that is alien to him. He was not born in sin like you and I are. Romans 5 teaches us this. For as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men. Why? Because all have sinned. Every baby ever born, however cute they may be, is a sinning baby. You never taught your child how to tell a lie. You never told your son or your daughter, now when you want a toy, what you do is you go to a person who has your toy and you bite them on the arm. That's how you get your toy back. You never taught them that. 
and yet they did it. Why? Well, because they take after their father. That's why. Of a sin nature. The Bible says that Jesus does not have a sin nature. Why? Because he has no earthly father. Joseph was not Jesus' daddy. And Joseph stepped in and served in this capacity. But Jesus was from heaven, the Bible teaches us. He was conceived of the Holy Ghost. And he was conceived of the Holy Ghost by Mary. By the way, Mary was a sinner just like you and I were sinners. Do you know why? Because Mary is a human being just like you and I are human beings. Jesus, however, is not born of man. Jesus, the Bible says, is born of a woman. He is not born of man. His father is God. This teaches us something about the deity of Christ. That Jesus, although he was fully man, he's fully human, the Bible says Jesus is fully God. He was both God, 100% God, and 100% man. And Jesus in the garden is struggling, he's wrestling, he's becoming exceeding sorrowful, very heavy, sore amazed. Why? Because in this moment of Gethsemane, he's becoming our sin bearer. He's face to face with something that is alien to him, which is what? Sin. Sin which will bring the wrath of God. He has never known sin. He has never known the wrath of God. Sin which separates us from God. He has never been separated from God. He was forever in the presence of God. Past tense. And after the cross, he will be forever in the presence of God. Future tense. But on the cross, God turns his back on Christ. He is experiencing the Father's will. He's embracing sin, listen, as a sin bearer. Not as a sinner, but as a sin bearer. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but really the entire Bible is the tell of two gardens. The Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. What one man did in the garden and how it ruined us. And what another man, Christ, does in this garden and how it rescues us. In the first garden, a man by the name of Adam decided to do his own will rather than God's. And we have sin and sickness and sorrow and death and separation from God. And Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane says, I'm not going to do my own will, but thine. And Jesus does the will of the Father. This ought to be our desire as a follower of Christ, seeking to do the will of the Father. Seeking to do the will of God. I want you to understand something about Jesus' death. We won't have time for all of it, but we'll, we'll do this. Let me see here. I need a little bit of help. Daniel. Dan the man. Come here, buddy. I want to use you for a second. And Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane becomes our sin bearer, the Bible says. This is Dan. Everybody say hi to Dan. If you don't know Dan, he's a good guy. You should get to know him. You got a girlfriend? We can take care of that right now. Let me find somebody. No, it's just teasing. Okay. Dan is going to represent, look, Dan is going to represent us. He's going to represent sinful man. Come here, Evan. So stand over here, Dan. He's going to represent us, sinful man. Evan, it's a poor representation, but he's going to represent Jesus, okay? It's just an illustration, all right? It's poor representation. You've got to use what you got. Evan's going to represent Jesus. The Bible says that what's happening in the garden is Jesus is taking our place for us. He's, look here, he's becoming our substitute. So what I deserve because I'm a sinner is being taken off of me and being placed on Christ. 
So the agony that Jesus is feeling is not a result of his own sin. Jesus has no sin. And Jesus is not born in sin. Jesus is altogether different from sin. He was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. The Bible says he fulfilled the law of God. He, he obeyed every point of the law of God. He did not violate the law of God even in one place. Even though the Pharisees and the Sadducees tried to tell him, you violated the law of God. Jesus says, no, no, no. I violated your interpretation of God's law. But I did not, I did not violate the law of God. And Jesus is correcting the, the Sadducees and Pharisees all throughout his ministry in this way. He, he fulfilled the law of God for us. Jesus does not destroy the law of God. Jesus fulfilled it. He completed it. Everything that God demanded, everything that God required, everything that God expected of mankind, Jesus did for us. And the Bible says in the garden, Jesus is in a place of agony. Why? Because he is becoming our sin bearer. He's taking our sin upon himself. Aren't you thankful that Jesus died on the cross for your sin? Aren't you thankful Jesus did for you what you couldn't do for yourself? I don't, I don't know about you, but the, uh, the thought of trying to fulfill the law of God, you know there's 636 laws in the Old Testament? You know maybe 10 of them. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to wager, because we're, we're Baptists, we don't bet. So I'm going to wager that you can give me about seven of those top 10. But you know, there's more than 10. There's 636 commandments in the Bible of God saying, do this and don't do that. And the thought of trying to make sure that tomorrow I did or didn't do all of those things, there's no way any of us can. The Bible says, all men are liars. And all the ladies said, amen and amen. All men are liars. And Jesus did for us what we couldn't do. This is the beauty of what's happening on the crucifixion of Christ. And we're going to study this story the next few weeks. But this is the beauty of what's happening. Not only is Jesus on the cross taking our sin upon himself, something that's something totally foreign to him, suffering the wrath of God, understanding separation from God. The Bible is saying in Gethsemane, he is sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. This is the struggle. This is the exceeding sorrowful that he is becoming as a result of sin. Let, let, me, let me just pull over here. Let me just talk about this. You and I make so light of sin. Christ is crushed under sin. You and I go, well... Nobody's perfect, so might as not even try. I don't, might as well not even care. You and I so flippantly disregard righteousness and holiness. We so easily walk into sin justifying what we've said, what we've done, what we've lurked at. Oh, well, I deserved that. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares for me. She said mean things about me. They don't know what I do for them. I need these things. So many times we justify our own sin. Christ in the garden comes face to face with sin. He's crushed by it, the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And Jesus takes our sin as our sin bearer on himself. But here's what the Bible says. Look here. Look here. This is the good news you need to hear. That what Jesus does for us is becomes our substitute. So not only does he take our sin upon himself, but give me your coat here. He gives you and I, put your arm in there, Dano. Good job, bud. You look pretty sharp, man. He gives you and I, look here. He gives you and I a righteousness that is not our own. So he takes my sin from me. He puts it on himself. He becomes sin. He goes to the cross. He dies for the exceeding sinfulness of sin. That's how awful sin is. That Christ, the only way I can be set free from my sin is for Christ to die for me. No other way could you be set free from your sin except Christ died. And in return... 
What God gives me and what God gives you is his righteousness. So look here. Dan looks kind of silly, huh? Look, that coat doesn't fit you, buddy. Hey, let's change shoes. Give him your shoes. Take off your shoes off. Give him your shoes, Evan. There you go. Hey, I'll take the other one off. Your socks match? Okay, good. Put those shoes on. Want to try to walk down the steps? Okay, don't do it. You'll fall. <laughs> Is shoes too big? Is a coat too big? Look, and some of you in your Christian journey, this is exactly how you're feeling. You're feeling like, this just feels weird. I don't know what to do now. I don't know. I can't. Look, the, the growth that has to happen in your life and in my life, this is a process called sanctification. So now in your life, you pursue after Christ. You say, well, Christ did the will of the Father, so I want to do the will of the Father. Christ didn't do his own will. Christ did the will of God. I want to do the will of God. What's God's will for my marriage? What's God's will for my sexuality? What's God's will for my body? What's God's will for my mind? What's God's will for my money? What's God's will for my car? What's God's will for my mouth, my thoughts, my words, my entertainments? I want to do the will of God. And as you fulfill to do the will of God, guess what? You grow into, the Bible says, you fill up. You grow up into righteousness. You start to fill it out. Look here. And some of you, this is where you're struggling. You're, you're, you're this morning, you're going, I just don't feel worthy of what Christ has done. I don't feel deserving of what Christ has done. Here's the good news. You are not worthy and you do not deserve. None of us do. But Christ gave to us anyway. And what he's asking of us in return is, follow me. Follow me. Do not seek to do your own will. Do the will of him that sent me. And why we feel so frustrated. Let's walk over here, Dan. Why, we've been talking to this crowd. Let's talk to this crowd over here. They'll, they'll smile. Okay. Why we feel so frustrated in life. Look here. It's because we keep trying to do our own will instead of the will of God. You know why we want to do our own will? Because it's easy. God's will is rarely easy. But God's will is always best. God's will is always best. Look at the text. Notice what he says. Jesus here on the cross taking our place. The Bible says, verse 34, my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. So look at, look at the phrase. Tarry ye here and what? Watch. Watch. Jesus has given us a pattern in this book. Point. Jesus is becoming our substitution, but Jesus is giving us a pattern. He's saying, here is how you do the will of God. Watch me. Here is how you do the will of God. And Jesus in this moment is treated like me and you. So that you and I could be treated like him. God's will for Jesus was a place of agony. God's will for Jesus was a place of struggle. Even though God's will is best, God's will is not always easy to do. And Jesus says, notice the verse, verse 36, all things are possible unto thee. There's nothing outside of the prerogative and there's nothing outside of the power of God. All things are possible. When Jesus says this, notice the verse, Jesus says, nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Take, this, take away this cup from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but thou wilt. In Jesus' prayer here, three things, get this quickly. Jesus' prayer is not trying to escape providing salvation. Jesus' prayer, second, eliminates any other way of salvation. If there was any other way, and let it happen now. What is Jesus showing us here? There's no other way. This is the way. There's no other way. If there were another way, it would have been made available. But there is no other way. So Jesus' prayer 
is not trying to escape providing salvation. Jesus' prayer is eliminating any other way of salvation. And then the last thought here on this point, Jesus' prayer is entirely submissive to the will of the Father. You know the hardest prayer you will ever pray? Not my will, but thine be done. Not my will, but thine be done. Learning to submit to God is a lifelong process. Learning to submit to God is a lifelong process. You never get to the place in your Christian life where you go, huh, look at that. I am now perfect. Anybody ever feel like that? Of course not. If you feel that way, just ask your husband or your wife. They'll point out some things where you're not perfect in. You never get to that place. It's a lifelong process. But let me give you this last one. Jesus, for Jesus, God's will was a place of agony. God's will was a place of struggle. Last one. God's will was a place of victory. God's will was a place of victory. He wrestles with this three times, the Bible says. Look at verse 39. And again, he went away. He prayed, spake the same words. Happens again. He says in verse 41, look at it. He that cometh the third time and saith unto them, sleep on now, take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of, of sinners. Rise up, let us go. He that betrayeth me is at hand. He that betrayeth me is at hand. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane is going through the agony. He's going through the struggle, but you need to understand this. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane is accomplishing for us the victory. The victory. He groans, he shouts, he cries. But when it's all over, what does he say? He says to the disciples, what? Rise up. Let us go. He that betrayeth me is at hand. You know what he doesn't say to the disciples? He doesn't say this. He doesn't go, hey, shh, 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 shh. They're coming. Sneak out the back. They won't, they won't find us if we got out here now. This, this is too much. I didn't realize it was going to be this hard. No. He says, rise up. Let's go. The betrayer is here. Jesus had a fortitude, a courage, a holy resolve. He had set, the Bible says, his face like a flint to do what? To do the will of God. What about you? What about you? Have you set yourself to do the will of God?